This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Anti-Federalist Papers Anti-Federalist No. 15 Letters from the Federal Farmer to the Republican Letter No. 13 January 14, 1788 Dear Sir, In this letter I shall further examine two clauses in the proposed Constitution respecting appointments to office. By Article two, Section 2, the President shall nominate, and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, judges of the Supreme Court, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments, and etc. By Article one, Section 6, no Senator or Representative shall, during the term for which he was elected, be appointed to any civil office under the authority of the United States which shall have been created, or the emoluments whereof shall have been increased during such time. Thus the President must nominate, and the Senate concur in the appointment of all Federal officers, civil and military, and the Senators and Representatives are made ineligible only to the few civil offices above mentioned. To preserve the Federal Government pure and uncorrupt, peculiar precautions relative to appointments of office will be found highly necessary from the very forms and character of the Government itself. The honors and emoluments of public offices are the objects in all communities, that ambitious and necessitous men never lose sight of. The honest, the modest, and the industrious part of the community content themselves generally with their private concerns. They do not solicit those offices which are the perpetual source of cabals, intrigues, and contests among men of the former description, men embarrassed, intriguing, and destitute of modesty. Even in the most happy country and virtuous government, corrupt influence in appointments cannot always be avoided. Perhaps we may boast of our share of virtue as a people, and if we are only sufficiently aware of the influence, biases, and prejudices common to the affairs of men, we may go far towards guarding against the effects of them. We all agree that a large standing army has a strong tendency to depress and enslave the people. It is equally true that a large body of selfish, unfeeling, unprincipled civil officers has a like or a more pernicious tendency to the same point. Military, and especially civil establishments, are the necessary appendages of society. They are deductions from productive labor and substantial wealth in proportion to the number of men employed in them. They are oppressive where unnecessarily extended and supported by men unfriendly to the people. They are injurious when too small, and supported by men too timid and dependent. It is of the last importance to decide well upon the necessary number of offices, to fill them with proper characters, and to establish efficiently the means of punctually punishing those officers who may do wrong. To discern the nature and extent of this power of appointments, we need only to consider the vast number of officers necessary to execute a national system in this extensive country, the prodigious biases the hopes and expectations of offices have on their conduct, and the influence public officers have among the people. These necessary officers, as judges, states' attorneys, clerks, sheriffs, etc., in the federal supreme and inferior courts, admirals and generals and subordinate officers in the army and navy, ministers, consuls, and etc. sent to foreign countries, officers in the federal city, in the revenue, post-office departments, and etc. must, probably, amount to several thousands, without taking into view the very inferior ones. 
There can be no doubt that the most active men in politics, in and out of Congress, will be the foremost candidates for the best of these offices. The man or men who shall have the disposal of them, beyond dispute, will have by far the greatest share of active influence in the government. But appointments must be made, and who shall make them? What modes of appointments will be attended with the fewest inconveniences? Is the question. The senators and representatives are the lawmakers, create all offices, and whenever they see fit they impeach and try officers for misconduct. They ought to be in session but part of the year, and as legislators they must be too numerous to make appointments, perhaps, a few very important ones excepted. In contemplating the necessary officers of the Union there appear to be six different modes in which, in whole or in part, the appointments may be made. 1. By the legislature. 2. By the President and Senate. 3. By the President and an Executive Council. 4. By the President alone. 5. By the heads of the departments. and 6. By the state governments. Among these, in my opinion, there may be an advantageous distribution of the powers of appointments. In considering the legislatures, in relation to the subject before us, two interesting questions particularly arise. 1. Whether they ought to be eligible to any offices whatever during the period for which they shall be elected to serve, and even for some time afterwards, and 2. How far they ought to participate in the power of appointments. As to the first, it is true that legislators in foreign countries or in state governments are not generally made ineligible to office. There are good reasons for it. In many countries the people have gone on without ever examining the principles of government. There have been but few countries in which the legislators have been a particular set of men periodically chosen. But the principal reason is, that which operates in the several states, viz., the legislators are so frequently chosen and so numerous compared with the number of offices for which they can reasonably consider themselves as candidates, that the choice of any individual members being chosen is too small to raise his hopes or expectations, or to have any considerable influence on his conduct. Among the state legislators, one man in twenty may be appointed in some committee business, for a month or two, but on a fair computation not one man in a hundred sent to the state legislatures is appointed to any permanent office of profit. Directly the reverse of this will evidently be found true in the federal administration. Throughout the United States, about four federal senators and thirty-three representatives averaging the elections will be chosen in a year. These few men may rationally consider themselves as the fairest candidates for a very great number of lucrative offices, which must become vacant in the year, and pretty clearly a majority of the federal legislators, if not excluded, will be mere expectants for public offices. I need not adduce further arguments to establish a position so clear. I need only call to your recollection my observation in a former letter, wherein I endeavored to show the fallacy of the argument that the members must return home and mix with the people. It is said that men are governed by interested motives and will not attend as legislators unless they can, in common with others, be eligible to offices of honor and profit. This will undoubtedly be the case with some men, but I presume only with such men as never ought to be chosen legislators in a free country. An opposite principle will influence good men, virtuous patriots, and generous minds, and will esteem it a higher honor to be selected as the guardians of a free people. They will be satisfied with a reasonable compensation for their time and service, nor will they wish to be within the vortex of influence.
the valuable effects of this principle of making legislators ineligible to offices for a given time has never yet been sufficiently attended to or considered i am assured that it was established by the convention after a long debate and afterwards on an unfortunate change of a few members altered could the federal legislators be excluded in the manner proposed i think it would be an important point gained as to themselves they would be left to act much more from motives consistent with the public good in considering the principle of rotation i had occasion to distinguish the condition of a legislator from that of a mere official man we acquire certain habits feelings and opinions as men and citizens others and very different ones from a long continuance in office it is therefore a valuable observation in many bills of rights that rulers ought frequently to return and mix with the people a legislature in a free country must be numerous it is in some degree a periodical assemblage of the people frequently formed the principal officers in the executive and judicial departments must have more permanency in office hence it may be inferred that the legislature will remain longer uncorrupted and virtuous longer congenial to the people than the officers of those departments if it is not therefore in our power to preserve republican principles for a series of ages in all the departments of government we may a long while preserve them in a well-formed legislature to this end we ought to take every precaution to prevent legislatures from becoming mere office men choose them frequently make them recallable establish rotation among them make them ineligible to offices and give them as small a share as possible in the disposal of them add to this a legislature in the nature of things is not formed for the detailed business of appointing officers there is also generally an impropriety in the same men's making offices and filling them and still a greater impropriety in their impeaching and trying the officers they appoint for these and other reasons i conclude the legislature is not a proper body for the appointment of officers in general but having gone through with the different modes of appointment i shall endeavor to show what share in the distribution of power of appointments the legislature must from necessity rather than from propriety take two officers may be appointed by the president and senate this mode for general purposes is clearly not defensible all the reasoning touching the legislature will apply to the senate the senate is a branch of the legislature which ought to be kept pure and unbiased it has a part in trying officers for misconduct and in creating offices it is too numerous for a council of appointment or to feel any degree of responsibility if it has an advantage of the legislature in being the least numerous it has a disadvantage in being the more unsafe add to this the senate is to have a share in the important branch of power respecting treaties further this sexennial senate of twenty-six members representing thirteen sovereign states will not in practice be found a body to advise but to order and dictate in fact and the president will be a mere primus inter pares. the consequence will be that the senate with these efficient means of influence will not only dictate probably to the president but manage the house as the constitution now stands and under appearances of a balanced system in reality govern alone there may also by this undue connection be particular periods when a very popular president may have a very improper influence upon the senate and upon the legislature a council of appointment must very probably sit all or near in the year the senate will be too important and too expensive a body for this 
by giving the senate directly or indirectly an undue influence over the representatives and the improper means of fettering embarrassing or controlling the president or executive we give the government in the very outset a fatal and pernicious tendency to that middle undesirable point aristocracy when we as a circumstance not well to be avoided admit the senate to a share of power in making treaties and managing foreign concerns we certainly progress full far enough towards this most undesirable point in a government for with this power also i believe we must join that of appointing ambassadors other foreign ministers and consuls being powers necessarily connected in every point of view in which i can contemplate this subject it appears extremely clear to me that the senate ought not generally to be a council of appointment the legislature after the people is the great fountain of power and ought to be kept as pure and uncorrupt as possible from the hankerings biases and contagion of offices then the streams issuing from it will be less tainted with those evils it is not merely the number of impeachments that are to be expected to make public officers honest and attentive in their business a general opinion must pervade the community that the house the body to impeach them for misconduct is disinterested and ever watchful for the public good and that the judges who shall try impeachments will not feel a shadow of bias under such circumstances men will not dare transgress who not deterred by such accusers and judges would repeatedly misbehave we have already suffered many and extensive evils owing to the defects of confederation and not providing against the misconduct of public officers when we expect the law to be punctually executed not one man in ten thousand will disobey it it is the probable chance of escaping punishment that induces men to transgress it is one important mean to make the government just and honest rigidly and constantly to hold before the eyes of those who execute it punishment and dismission from office for misconduct these are principles no candid man who has just ideas of the essential features of a free government will controvert they are to be sure at this period called visionary speculative and anti-governmental but in the true style of courtiers selfish politicians and flatterers of despotism discerning republican men of both parties see their value they are said to be of no value by empty boasting advocates for the constitution who by their weakness and conduct in fact injure its cause much more than most of its opponents from their high-sounding promises men are led to expect a defense of it and to have their doubts removed when a number of long pieces appear they instead of the defense and etc they expected to see nothing but a parade of names volumes written without ever coming to the point cases quoted between which and ours there is not the least similitude and partial extracts made from histories and governments merely to serve a purpose some of them like the true admirers of royal and senatorial robes would fain prove that nations who have thought like freemen and philosophers about government and endeavored to be free have often been the most miserable if a single riot in the course of five hundred years happened in a free country if a salary or the interest of a public or private debt was not paid at the moment they seem to lay more stress upon these trifles for trifles they are in a free and happy country than upon the oppressions of despotic government for ages together as to the lengthy writer in new york you mention i have attentively examined his pieces he appears to be a candid good-hearted man 
to have a good style, and some plausible ideas, but when we carefully examine his pieces to see where the strength of them lies, when the mind endeavors to fix on those material points which ought to be the essence of all voluminous productions, we do not find them. The writer appears constantly to move on a smooth surface. The part of his work, like the parts of a cob-house, are all equally strong and equally weak, and all like those works of the boys without an object. His pieces appear to have but little relation to the great question, whether the Constitution is fitted to the condition and character of this people or not. But to return. 3. Officers may be appointed by the President and an Executive Council, when we have assigned to the Legislature the appointment of a few important officers, to the President and Senate the appointment of those concerned in managing foreign affairs, to the State Governments the appointment of militia officers, and authorize the Legislature by legislative acts to assign the, to the Presidency alone, to the heads of the Departments and Courts of Law respectively, the appointment of many inferior officers, we shall then want to lodge somewhere a residuum of power, a power to appoint all other necessary officers as established by law. The fittest receptacle for this residuary power is clearly, in my opinion, the first executive magistrate, advised and directed by an executive council of seven or nine members, periodically chosen from such proportional districts as the Union may for the purpose be divided into. The people may give their votes for twice the number of councillors wanted, and the federal legislature take twice the number also from the highest candidates, and from among them choose the seven or nine, or number wanted. Such a council may be rationally formed for the business of appointments, whereas the Senate, created for other purposes, never can be. Such councils form a feature in some of the best executives in the Union. They appear to be essential to every first magistrate who may frequently want advice. To authorize the President to appoint his own council would be unsafe. To give the sole appointment of it to the legislature would confer an undue and unnecessary influence upon that branch. Such a council for a year would be less expensive than the Senate for four months. The President may nominate, and the councillors always be made responsible for their advice and opinions by recording and signing whatever they advise to be done. They and the President, to many purposes, will properly form an independent executive branch, have an influence unmixed with the legislative, which the executive never can have while connected with a powerful branch of the legislature. And yet the influence arising from the power of appointments be less dangerous, because in less dangerous hands, hands properly adequate to possess it. Whereas the Senate, from its character and situation, will add a dangerous weight to the power itself, and be far less capable of responsibility than the Council proposed. There is another advantage. The residuum of power as to appointments which the President and Council need possess is less than the President and Senators must have, and as such a Council would render the sessions of the Senate unnecessary many months in the year. The expenses of the government would not be increased if they would not be lessened by the institution of such a Council. I think I need not dwell upon this article, as the fitness of this mode of appointment will perhaps amply appear by the evident unfitness of the others. 4. Offices may be appointed by the President alone. It has been almost universally found, when a man has been authorized to exercise power alone, he has never done it alone, but generally aided his determinations by, and rested on the advice and opinions of others. And it often happens when advice is wanted, the worst men, the most interested creatures, the worst advice is at hand, 
obtrude themselves, and misdirect the mind of him who would be informed and advised. It is very seldom we see a single executive depend on accidental advice and assistance, but each single executive has, almost always, formed itself a regular council, to be assembled and consulted on important occasions. This proves that a select council of some kind is by experience generally found necessary and useful. But in a free country the exercise of any considerable branch of power ought to be under some checks and controls. As to this point, I think the Constitution stands well. The legislature may, when it shall deem it expedient, from time to time, authorize the President alone to appoint particular inferior officers, and, when necessary, to take back the power. His power, therefore, in this respect, may always be increased or decreased by the legislature, as experience, the best instructor, shall direct, always keeping him, by the Constitution, within certain bounds. Yours, the Federal Farmer. End of Anti-Federalist Number 15